0: Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now,
1: here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover.
0: And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 53 of The Lawyerist Podcast where we talk with Billy Tarasio about her innovative law firm.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones so we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we are being productive, and we love the job they do. Visit callruby.com lawyerist to get a risk-free
0: trial with Ruby. Our sponsors only cover part of the cost of producing our podcast, um, so if you enjoyed the show, we would really appreciate it if you would visit lawyerist.com podcast and click on support the podcast and make a small donation to keep the show going in 2016. So Sam, uh, there was a post on Seth Godin's blog this week um, that I thought was a a little bit interesting for lawyers um, who think of themselves as business owners trying to make the distinction between clients and customers. And I think lawyers as a general rule understand the distinction, but not all of them do. And a lot of them regularly put themselves in the wrong mindset when thinking about it.
1: You know, I think uh, lawyers... uh, understand the distinction intuitively, but I, with all this conversation about lawyers selling products and, you know, we always reach out to Apple for comparisons of how lawyers do business versus how, I think you're right that not enough lawyers actually understand the concept of what's different between sales and a client relationship.
0: Yeah, so the the post here, I think, probably thinks of clients more in the consulting realm, but I think it's useful anyway. So the Seth Godin makes the point that customers are people who buy something from you that you, you've you already decided what it is and you've already made it, whereas clients, you work for them to create the outcome or the product for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this dynamic where lawyers for sure know they have clients and a lot of them don't really recognize that it's not just a duty to the client, but you need to think about your business a little differently and you can't sell a product to a client.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I'm going to continue with my Apple analogy because I feel like Apple is always coming up and here's a way to make a distinction. You don't get to go to the Apple store and pick up your iPhone and say, you know what, I, I really like this, but I- what I really need it to do is um, I need the battery to last for five days. So why don't you take this in the back and rejigger it and give, me, give it to me with a five-day iPhone? Um, but a client gets to do that. They get to take your, your draft will or um, they get to sit down with you and talk about litigation strategy and they get to tell you how to do it, basically.
0: Right. And I, I think a lot of people who maybe come to law with a customer mindset then also don't realize the stress and pressure and complications that having clients have different than kind of a normal business where you're not selling, you're at, you are directed by your clients. It's not your business to run, it's theirs.
1: Yeah, this is a kind of a useful thing to keep in mind whenever somebody talks about Um, selling in the legal context or, um, you know, when we talk about legal services as a product, it seems to me that it's pretty useful to keep in the back of your mind that while it might be helpful to talk about it in that way, we're still talking about relationships because what lawyers do is have clients, not customers. Yeah.
0: So there you go. Uh, I'll link to the post in the show notes and you can check it out there.
1: And now here is my conversation with Billy Tarasio.
2: My name is Billy Tarasio, and I am um, an attorney and a accidental software developer um, here in the Phoenix area.
1: And okay, so I watched you talk at the Clio conference, and I was really wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about what I perceived to be your efforts to serve the sort of, um, the access to justice gap as well as traditional full representation, um, bespoke clients. Does, does that, re- does that sound like what you were trying, you are or trying to do?
2: Yes. I mean, it, it yes, absolutely. That's what it has become. Um, initially I was just trying to really feel the access to justice gap, but, um, as, as time has gone on, it's become obvious that really, you can't be a, a real profitable, successful law firm and only serve that section. So at this point, we're really, we've developed a model that allows us to uh, serve a wide variety of people and their needs.
1: Well, that's a super provocative start. So let's um, kind of take that apart. Because what I'm curious about is, did you set out wanting to build a firm that served uh, that furthered access to justice or did you uh, decide you wanted to stop turning away clients that couldn't afford full representation or was it sort of a melding of the two?
2: Sort of a melding. So I was with other law firms and um, when I was a brand new attorney and I was watching them turn away all of these people and I've always just been really interested in business. And so, you know, as I studied this um, market, it seemed like there was this awesome um uh, availability of uh, work for lawyers who could figure out a way to serve um, people who didn't have traditional big attorney budgets. So that was the original goal with launching the law firm.
1: And so you started out thinking that you were going to try and serve those people that were getting turned away from other lawyers,
2: primarily. right? Okay. That we would do a low cost, limited scope only model.
1: So how did that start out? I mean, when you when you first started doing it, did you did you start building software right away? Or did you have a, an idea that you started putting together and ran with it and started iterating on it?
2: No, software wasn't even part of the equation at that point. It was, um, it was a concept that looked more like a retail store necessarily and not necessarily a law firm where I would use contract attorneys for all sorts of areas of law. People could come in for a hundred bucks an hour and get access to attorneys for projects. So that was the original launch and it worked pretty well. I mean, we saw about a thousand clients in our first year, which was really great, but mm-hmm. the profit margin just wasn't there.
1: So what was the big problem with that? Or what was the I mean, you said profit margin, but what was it that was holding back the profit margin there?
2: Well, in order to keep good attorneys and run a successful law firm at $99 an hour, you would need a huge volume. So the thousand clients wasn't enough. So you'd need large gotcha. marketing dollars and you'd also need management, management that went way beyond my capabilities at that end. So it probably, in order to make that model work, you would probably need third-party ownership.
1: Hmm. So um, so you, you decided that wasn't going to do the trick. So you started working on something else. What was the next iteration of this?
2: Um slowly, that model began looking more and more like a traditional firm where people who wanted to hire us to go to court and represent them in a, you know, quote, full scope capacity could deposit money onto retainers and that sort of thing. But I was obsessed with um, figuring out a way to keep the cost down. And that's what led me to kind of stumble upon becoming a software developer.
1: So what was the idea behind, I mean, what was your vision of the software you wanted to develop?
2: Um, I wanted a cloud-based software. And at this time, you know, back in the day when I started this, 2012, that was kind of novel. And now it's not. But um, I wanted a cloud-based software that would allow me to automate my law firm and sell documents and knowledge directly to the public. So I could send questionnaires to clients. They could fill out the information. That information would be saved to populate any and all documents moving forward. So if, the, if you wrote some brilliant paragraph on your petition, you didn't have to then, you know, go cut and paste it and copy it and find it for other documents. It was all there.
1: That seems like a huge project. So were you going to build that whole thing yourself? Or did you start with off the shelf stuff and play with it? Or what?
2: I started searching for a something that could do it. And I didn't find very many. and and the what I found was um, a product called Legal Docx that was being sold by US. Legal forms that uh, was originally a a company from Spain. And so it was brand spanking new. I think I might have been their second customer. Hmm. And so I you know purchased it for a ridiculously low price, like fifty dollars a month. Um, and it was open source. and that was another thing that I really liked about it. Um, But it was very limited. So immediately I began to pour dollars into um, customizing it, uh, Mm -hmm. making use of the open source platform. Um, And so that's what I that's why I said it was it was kind of an accident because, you know, a year and a half later, I built what I want. I spent a ton of money, but I, I didn't really have the skills or ability to (laughs) <laughs> to take on the endeavor that I had taken on, so
1: you're you're paying outside developers, I imagine.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Okay, um, what's that process like? What what is it like to build your own piece of software from scratch?
2: I used Elance, which is now Upwork. Um, so it's just a a website. Or have you talked about that at all in the past? I don't think so. No. Oh, great. Okay, so um, Elance, which is now Upwork, is a outsourcing platform that allows you to go post your job, and it could be any job. It could be SEO, it could be marketing, it could be design, it could be legal writing, and people from all over the world bid on your job. Um, so this has allowed me to outsource things to all over the world for very low dollars. Um, and, and I found a software developer through this platform, and he was mainly out of Pakistan, and we worked together via Skype. Um, for about a year and a half. Hmm.
1: So what was the trick to making that work? Because I've watched a lot of startups pour a ton of money down the drain trying to work with outsourced developers. Um, there there seem to be some tricks to making it actually work out. Um, and, But it seems like more often than not, people just end up throwing money away. So what did you find was the key to working with that that developer in Pakistan?
2: I think I got lucky. Honestly. And I have a great team here on the ground. Yeah. Um, He wasn't the first developer that I worked with. We probably worked with two before him that were complete, you know, busts. But we could figure that out pretty quickly and then um, moved on to finding this particular developer. And he did a great job.
1: Hmm. And how long did it take you to do this?
2: About a year and a half before we were ready to launch it. And we launched it in a, it's not perfect. It's not perfect now. But once it was ready to launch, we could begin we could begin using it in the law firm before we could make it available to the public. So we began using it within the law firm pretty quickly, um, and then we just kept making it better. Uh, and then we launched it to the public um, about a year and a half ago.
1: And I should say for listeners, if you want to see what it looks like on the front end, it's accesslegaldocs.com, right? Right? So this does all of the this is just for the document automation piece right and it and does it do everything from well tell me how, tell me what sort of the workflow is for this
2: So the way I that we it, use ta- it, it
1: starts at intake right
2: Right. Starts at intake. Well, it doesn't start at intake. I describe intake as our first, the person who takes the first call from the lead. So they're not using the document automation software, but once someone signs up to be a client, they receive a questionnaire via email. And that's where we start using, um, the software within the firm. Okay.
1: And so there's an, if somebody signs up to get a, uh, you know, uh, divorce petition or a, a petition for dissolution or whatever I'm, I'm just sort of looking down your menu here um does is there an attorney that's assigned to that
2: okay so you're looking at the um pro per portal so people who are representing themselves would go to that website yep. when we're is using that, it, is
1: that all they just do it all themselves yes okay
2: they do it all themselves
1: but the back so, end of that is still the same piece of software or no are we talking am i getting ahead of you
2: no, you're, it is definitely the same piece of software, oh, but cool. it's not accessed the same way. So, mm. the our clients just receive a questionnaire; they never go to that website.
1: I gotcha. Um, so, well, tell, you, tell me. So, how do you how do you differentiate? Um, do you, are you referring back and forth? Is there a point if somebody's trying to trying to do a a document by themselves? Is there a point at which a red flag goes up and it says, you know what, you really need to talk to an attorney? And vice versa, are there times when somebody contacts you for um, for full or, uh, representation or or um, and you kind of go, no, you, you really just need the form. Why don't you go over there and just do it?
2: I assumed that that's how it would work. But uh, the fact of the matter is most people are using lawyers. Most people are huh. not using pro per do-it-yourself documents, even though they are the same exact documents.
1: And the main difference is if you're hiring a lawyer, then you have somebody to hold your hand through the process and double-check your work, basically.
2: Um, and yes. Any I mean,
1: customization that might be necessary.
2: Right. Right. So when you're doing the forms yourself, they output in Microsoft Word so they can be completely edited, Hmm. um, which is another big difference between my product and a lot of the other products that are out there. Um, But for our clients, the law firm clients, they don't even know that we're using this software per se. I mean, they do because... I've made it known that that's what we're doing, but they just receive a questionnaire. They fill it out. The document comes to us. It outputs in Microsoft word and then the lawyers go about doing their jobs.
1: So, okay. So that's interesting, which is how I've kind of always envisioned um, the need for sort of a legal zoom for lawyers. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically the lawyers are just using the same product as the DIY clients until it gets to the lawyer. the difference is just that the lawyer gets it and then gets to take it from there versus the DIY client gets it and gets to do whatever they want with it. Okay. Yes.
2: Very cool. The only difference is that um, the lawyer is not doing a lot of the work because the questionnaires filled out by the clients yep. populate the da- the documents that the lawyers then do.
1: And do you also do more traditional, like, sit down, and ask all of the questions um, stuff, or does this kind of power all of the relationships at your firm, the client relationships?
2: No, we do a lot of, of sit-downs, a lot of strategy sessions that are, you know, one-to-one and sit-down. But m- most of the demographic information gets filled out in the, in the gotcha. system.
1: So, tell me now, what, what is the, you perceived that there was great demand. And before we start hit record, you said that it didn't really pan out that way. And you just mentioned that most people go hire an attorney. Mm-hmm. T- tell me more about that. Like, what do, what do you think is going on?
2: I don't know what's going on here, but I do know (laughs) that my assumptions, which seemed um, lock solid, haven't proven true. And so I think it really does um, invite us to take a step back and challenge our assumptions about access to justice.
1: I mean, you've essentially built, um, you've essentially built a tool that can eat your own lunch, right? Like, Yes. You went ahead and you went ahead and, and built your own LegalZoom that could potentially take away all the business from your firm. Right. Um, and then it and it didn't happen, which I, I think that should give hope to the lawyers who say that um, DIY will never be the same. And the mm-hmm. indication seems to be uh, that LegalZoom is realizing that, too. Um, I that agree Avvo with you. Is Isn't that interesting? That too. Um, yeah, yeah it, I, it, I think it is interesting. It's I've always said that DIY is not the same thing as pushing a button. Um, DIY means you have to do it yourself. You know, I can, I can put a wallboard in my basement, but I don't really want to. That's not a job that I... I I'm not a drywaller, and I'm not interested in doing that, even though I probably can. Um, and I think legal services are the same, but even more extreme because uh, it's more inscrutable. How about this for a theory? Do you think the reason that people are not using the Access Legal website is because it's there? And it makes them feel like you're willing to give it away... Therefore, the value of what else you're offering might be even greater. Kind of on the theory of if you offer people three price points, everybody will pick the one in the middle. Everybody chooses the second cheapest bottle of wine, even though it's the worst deal in the house.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a great theory.
1: Um, I'm kind of wondering because or like when I used to talk to clients and I told them not to hire me, those were the ones who would always insist on hiring me. Right. I didn't, I didn't try to game the system. I just say, you don't need to hire me. Here's how you can do it. I'll walk you through it. And they would say, nope, I really want to hire you. I, I wonder if it, um, it creates trust.
2: I, I think, yes, I think that you're right. It does create trust. I think that, um, people are probably wise to be wary of undertaking it themselves, I mean, yeah. <laughs> if we tell attorneys you can't practice more than one area of law, then how can someone really be expected to, to handle their own major complicated legal issue?
1: Or do you think it's just that there isn't nearly as much demand for DIY legal services as we thought? People don't really want to do it themselves, period.
2: Well, what's interesting about family law is people are doing it themselves. They're just not using these tools. Right. People are walking into court with forms that they've printed offline, that they've filled out by hand, that they can't customize, that don't look professional. And um, they are representing themselves. They're doing it badly and they're not using the tools that I have created for them that I have now made free.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting. So so it could be that you're offering better free documents, um, which makes people... Gets people sort of in the door, and they might just go ahead and call and end up saying, "Screw it, I'll just hire this person to do it anyway."
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: What? Well, tell me what was the what was the hardest part about building this sort of multi tiered um, law practice? Does it does it make sense to call it a practice? Maybe it does. Um, but what was the hardest part about doing this transformation of your law practice? Um, and what was the part that you thought was going to be hardest, but turned out not to be?
2: Well, what was, what's been the best thing that's come of this is by launching this DIY software platform, I have really been able to say, okay, I've now made that available to people who can't afford us. So in my law firm, I am now not afraid to charge top dollar, to charge what I believe that we are worth. Whereas prior, I was so obsessed with, um, helping people. And there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, I wasn't able to really unleash the power of the law firm to be uh, profitable and uh, uh, attract top talented attorneys and pay great benefits until I had this other site where I could point people who didn't have the funds. That
1: makes a lot of sense to me because you're like, look, these are good. I've created them. They're so good that I use them. You can go ahead and get them for really cheap. So I'm not going to bother being discounted. That exactly makes good sense to me. Yeah. Um, well, so you're you're about a year and a half into this experiment of adding, you know, build having your software, um, you know, with the sort of the two two sides of the of the firm. And I should there, there's actually two companies here, right? Correct. They both use use the same software. They probably refer back and forth, but they're actually two separate entities. That's right. So, um, is this, was this a good thing? Do you give yourself thumbs up and you're going to keep doing it and you consider it successful?
2: Well, I suppose it depends on how you, um, define successful. It has Define not. it for
1: me and then tell me.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, as a business owner, a product or a business is successful when it, creates a return on investment. And this has in no way done that. Okay. Not even close, but it has freed the law firm in order to be awesome. And, um, by that token, it has been very successful. And, and it, it was certainly, you know, I learned a ton and, um, and at this point I've kind of parked to development. It's not done. It has a ton more. It could do, but I'm done personally developing it. It's doing um, enough. Yes, it is doing enough.
1: And so uh, so when you look at the next three, five years, can you see the point where the lines cross and it becomes pos- uh, profitable or um, is that still an open question?
2: Demand, the market would have to change considerably um, in order for it to make money on its own right now. The other possibility is that- And we're it, talking
1: about access legal, not your firm,
2: right? Right, exactly. Okay. Um, the other possibility is with the right partnerships, with the right other people involved, um, access legal could become something else. But with me on my own right now today, it um, it won't make money unless the market significantly changes.
1: Is this one of those things where it has to scale radically in order to really work?
2: It does. And people okay. have to be willing to pay for it.
1: Yeah. Um, and w- if if you considered access legal and marketing exercise or um, sort of a marketing resource for the firm, would it look better from a financial standpoint?
2: Maybe. And that's what I'm going to try now. What I'm going to try now is making it available within um, places that could send me business like churches or nonprofits, make Hmm. it available for free, set it up for them, teach them how to use it, and then see what happens as far as law firm leads.
1: That's an interesting strategy. Mm-hmm. So, we've been talking so far mostly about Access Legal. Um, we know it powers the law firm, but tell me, how, how the, is the law firm set up uniquely too?
2: It is. Um, it is. At this point, it's so fun to apply business principles to... Um, the law firm and try different things out. And so uh, right now what we've been really focusing on is project management techniques and agile techniques. And so I learned all of these great things um, accidentally becoming a software developer. And so now we've been incorporating them into the law firm. So we have largely transitioned to a flat fee model where we have broken cases down into different phases and people pay um, uh, based on their phases in flat fee chunks. And that has kind of a menu. Yes. Yes. Um, it's, it's kind of a menu. Uh, and so, for instance, if you come to me and you want a divorce, we're going to say, okay, well, phase one of this divorce is from now until after we get a you know a case plan or a temporary order and here are the things we do and then we've been developing checklists that we use internally and that we also give to our clients to say, here's what's going to happen during this phase and here's what's expected of you and coming up with all of these tools that allow us to proactively manage our clients and our cases and become more profitable and without the billable hour.
1: And I- I'm recalling that you use... Um net promoter score as one of your sort of guiding principles, guiding goal setting things in your practice too. Is that right?
2: That is right. Yes. We um, in the last two years have, have really focused on key performance indicators and just being a lot more intentional about what we're doing in our law firm as opposed to just, you know, taking what comes in the door and then um, looking backwards at what happened and uh, net promoter scores is one of those key performance indicators that we are now using.
1: So we've talked about net promoter score before and I, I wrote about it, but t- I, how, tell me how you actually use it in a law firm.
2: couple ways. So we also use um, Infusionsoft as our auto autoresponder. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I have done as a law firm owner that so many owners have tried to do is take a step back from doing the day-to-day client work and do more of the owner um, aspects of the firm. So as part of me doing that, I developed a series of daily emails that would go out to clients with different bits of information um, or random stories or just ways that I could communicate to my clients and develop a relationship with them, even though I wasn't the one working with them. Mm -hmm. And so as part of that sequence, they get the question, uh, the net promoter score question.
1: And maybe I should back up and explain that real quick. It's um, on a scale of one to 10 or zero to 10, how likely are you to refer this firm to a friend or family member, right? Or do you use a, a right. something, a variation on that?
2: The only thing we've done is we've gone a step further to say, is there, would you make a differentiation between recommending your lawyer or recommending the firm? Okay. But essentially that's the question.
1: And what, and what you do with that then is you take the, um, you, you take the different scores and, uh, a nine or a 10 is a promoter, uh, a six to an eight is neutral And seven uh, and
2: eight is what we seven and
1: eight are neutral. Okay. And anything lower than that is a is a detractor. Right. Or or is there a better word for that? I forgot.
2: That's that's what they use. And and we're just using the formula, you know, that we're not tweaking it. We're just it was created by by business for business. And it's very rigid.
1: Yeah. And so you count up your your nines and tens. um, And the percentage of nines and tens um, is your net promoter score. Uh, your, your percentage of nines and tens minus your percentage of detractors is your net promoter score. Um, exactly. And essentially, if you're below, if you're 50% or below, then your firm is static or not growing because you're not bringing on people who are going to expand your firm. You're, you've are you got people who are actually subtracting from your pool of clients because they're out and saying bad things. About, enough people are out saying bad things about you that you're probably losing clients. Um, mm-hmm. And so, the idea is what you're trying to measure is growth. Uh, to give you sort of a gauge, I think uh, LegalZoom said in an earlier podcast that they don't launch a product unless they can get their net promoter score above 60 or 65. Mm-hmm. Um, most law firms struggle to get anywhere near 50. How mm-hmm. Do you guys talk about it? How, are you, how do you do?
2: We're, we're up at 70. Wow. Um,
1: Really good. Yeah.
2: And part of this, I have to wonder is, you know, we ask everyone. So we ask them in emails throughout their case because, um, it's one of the things that I measure my attorney's performance on and offer them bonuses on. Mm-hmm. And if they can take someone who was a neutral and turn them into a promoter, I want them to know way before the end of the case. So we ask throughout the case. Um, and then the other way that we ask is we uh, um, have our intake person who does, who feels all of the incoming phone calls also make those calls to current clients and, and, um, clients at the end of the case and, and ask. And the nice thing about that is that now my intake person is getting to know the lawyers better so that when she talks to leads who are calling in, she can say, you know, here's what Kylie's clients say about her, or here's what, you know, Darren's clients say about him. So that's been, that's been really great. The other thing that it's allowed us to do is follow up with those people and ask for online reviews. Um, oh, sure. So it, all of these happy unintended consequences um, started pouring in once we started asking.
1: So I'm going to take uh, a break in f- for two minutes for a message from our sponsors. But first I have to say, I misspoke about net promoter score. Any positive number is growth, not above 50. Um, uh, so it's as long as you, you get a positive net promoter score, you're doing okay. Um, but LegalZoom, I think their threshold was a 50, uh, and anything better than that is awesome. So, uh, two minutes from our sponsors, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about Net Promoter Score um, and using it to assess performance. And I'm curious about your system of how you get uh, clients to do the online reviews.
3: Today, we journey to the center of a lawyer's mind. This is Jeff. I'm stepping into his brain now. Jeff's brain is working on the case of a lifetime. Unfortunately, it's distracted with scheduling issues, documents, and timesheets. We need to act fast. I'm giving Jeff Clio, the cloud-based system that manages a lawyer's day-to-day operations. Clio handles your cases, billing, appointments, accounting, everything you need to run your practice. There, that's better. With Clio, Jeff's brain can focus on what Jeff does best. Get the law practice manager more Lawyer's Trust. Sign up for a free trial at clio.com slash lawyer or call 844-500-CLIO. That's 844-500-CLIO. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby
1: Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about ruby before you've probably heard this story already but when my first daughter was born i pulled up the ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because i was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child and then a few days later when i checked in at my office there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story, and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers, and I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try. And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around though, but since there's no risk, you might as well try. All right, we're back. Uh, Before we took the break, we were talking about Net Promoter Score uh, and how Billy uses it to assess performance. And it strikes me that that's a much better way to assess the performance of the lawyers at a firm than just looking at who brings in the most money. It's tempting to use money as a proxy for performance, but uh, Net Promoter Score kind of goes a step further and figures out who is actually growing the firm, not just measuring, you know, one, one uh, I mean, if somebody's bringing in a little bit more money every year, but they're having to get more and more clients or, or fewer clients that are, have bigger paychecks to do it. They're not really growing the firm in the way that you really want them to. So it's a, kind of a more nuanced thing. But tell me about using that as a way to get online reviews from your clients because that seems like a pretty clever way to do it.
2: Well, um, since we're asking, um, <laughs> since we're asking all the clients, how are we doing? When they say, you know, you're doing so great. We really appreciate this, this and this. And I've already sent three people your way. Um, then we say, thank you. Thank you so much for giving us this feedback. And would you mind, you know, filling out an online review for us? Um, just send over, you know, a link to, a, you know, a various place online to get an online review.
1: And so you target all those people. Is that something that's automated? Um, I know you're using Infusionsoft and I can imagine setting it up so that you're tracking net promoter score uh, of each client as you go. And then when you close the file, it automatically triggers a follow-up asking them to recommend you? Or is this something you do manually?
2: We ask for the reviews manually. Um, There's no reason that Infusionsoft couldn't uh, do it. You know, it couldn't say, okay, once someone is a promoter, then we send this canned email. We just haven't set it up that way. Gotcha.
1: Um, And how does that, I mean, what, what kind of results are you getting on that? Pretty good results or...
2: As far as...
1: I mean, it's a pretty good test of whether or not they really are promoters, right? Because your promoters shouldn't have any problem going and leaving a positive review on Yelp or Google Maps or whatever.
2: That's a great point. Um, No, people are much more willing to answer the survey questions than they are to go online, especially if they're not asked personally. Um, If we personally ask someone that we've worked with to... Um, you know, consider reviewing us online, then they're much more likely to do it than if they get a canned email that asks them to.
1: Hmm, interesting. You mentioned that your law firm is also set up in sort of service tiers. What are what are those tiers? How does that look?
2: If someone comes to us and they have $1,000, that's not going to be enough for us to take on their case or complete their divorce. But it doesn't mean that we can't do anything for them. So we still incorporate the use of limited scope legal services to figure out how to maximize people's budget. And Mm -hmm. if somebody comes to us and they say, you know, I have a total of $2,500, then we're going to tell them, go to access legal, do this, this, and this yourself. Come back to us 30 days before trial and, you know, we'll help you or that sort of thing. And the whole concept is how do we maximize people's budget so that they don't run out of money and end up hating their lawyer and have their lawyer withdraw 60 days before trial.
1: And so do you, I mean, do you have well-defined tiers or is it really just, you can either work with a a lawyer or you can go to access justice, or do you have kind of an unbundled um, service tier in the middle or a virtual practice tier in the middle, or how does that?
2: Yes. So if someone, uh, they haven't retained us, let's say, or they haven't, purchased a flat fee divorce, but they want to hire us to draft their documents. That would be like a limited scope or unbundled service. And they could pay for that. Absolutely.
1: So you wind up having sort of three ish tiers of service. Yes. Does anybody still fall through the cracks?
2: Um, yeah. I suppose there are people who
1: can't even afford DIY.
2: Well, the DIY is now free. The documents are free. Oh, all
1: of it's free. Okay.
2: All of it is free. Um, we can basically help anyone. And, and one of the other changes that we made was moving to a paid consultation uh, versus a free consultation. And I, I uh, touch about that a little bit in the um, article that I wrote on webinars. Um, But since transitioning to the paid consultation and really being very uh, proactive with giving people information about what to expect, um, the conversion rate is, is very high. Um, It's, it's, The low months, it's 70%. And the high months, it can be 100%. So we really are able to help a lot more people by being much more intentional and really telling people before they get to that consultation, here is what you can expect Um, to happen at that consultation here are your options moving forward and so they need to make the decision really before they paid $250 to sit down with us uh, of whether or not they want to work with us
1: so um, I know paid versus free consultations is like comes up all the time Mm -hmm. Um, I always charged and I out and I frequently did experiments to see if that was a bad decision and every time I, I stopped charging for consultations um, we never lasted the entire trial period that we had set aside because it was <laughs> terrible. Um, yeah. And I, has it been the same for you, or or do you get nervous and think, oh, maybe we're losing out on business, and we should go back to free consultations?
2: No, we we had been giving free consultations for a long time, and then that was one of those KPIs that we started tracking. And um, when we looked at those numbers, uh, there was one particular month where we we gave away 103 consultations, oh my and. Goodness. Yeah, it was just ridiculous, and seven people had retained us.
1: <laughs> you keep so, saying "we," by the way. How many lawyers are at the firm?
2: There's three lawyers and myself, so there's four okay. attorneys, and we're we're a team of a total of ten. So it's a okay, very cool, you know, small firm.
1: So, so paid consultations is was a at at some point you were just like, nope, we're just not doing free anymore. We're going to charge
2: definitely, and the numbers were crazy. I mean, the conversion went up. Uh, it was just so much better.
1: My my thought was always too that charging for consultations uh, saves you the trouble of, um, that sort of weird dance that you do to try and figure out if the client can actually pay you,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> if they, if they
1: can't find their checkbook, they're not going to pay for a consultation. If they can, then you already know it by the time they've paid you. So, definitely. so you talked about access legal, um, uh, as not being as successful as you had hoped having in different, different, uh, demand than you would perceived at the outset. Um, how's the firm doing? Um, how, would you call the firm successful if if you subtract access legal from the equation?
2: Yeah without a doubt without a doubt and it's more successful than it ever has been so that's kind of a bleed over I think of access legal which we can consider by financial uh, measurements an absolute failure. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Awesome. Um, But maybe as a loss leader or as a freemium model, it might still have some
2: hope. Yeah. And it was certainly fun. I mean, it was a great, fun experiment and I learned a lot.
1: And you wound up with some, sounds like pretty useful software.
2: Definitely. Yes. Pretty
1: pretty expensive, but pretty useful. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Are you tempted to take that software and open source it? Um. Or is it not? It is it has it not been built in a way that it would be useful open source yet?
2: That's a it's a great question. I haven't really thought about it. Um, so it's worth it's worth exploring.
1: I I'm going to urge you to think about it because I I really feel like um what's missing in all of this conversation about our small firms dying or how do they, how do we how do you stay in business for the next five ten years is having something like you've built which is sort of your own. Uh, lawyer powered legal zoom that that you can use to make the lawyers in the firm um, better faster stronger Um, i keep hoping somebody will build it and it sounds like you have and i um, i wonder if there's a reason to um, open source it and then sell it to other lawyers or um, or something like that so just something to think about
2: that's the only soapbox. reason I love that. I love that. And I would love to be able to do that. But the, the software as it stands right now, isn't ready to be turned over to other lawyers, it would take more development. But if we open source it, if we just turned it over and said, you know, develop it, then that might solve that. So I love that idea.
1: Well, on on that hopeful thought. <laughs> thank you so much for being with <laughs> us today. Uh, I really appreciated exploring what you've done. And um I, I love it when lawyers experiment and you have done it in You've jumped in with both feet, both arms, and done it and um, gotten interesting results. And I really appreciate you talking about it today.
2: Thanks so much, Sam. I really appreciate you.
1: To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyeristcom podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.